Hey everybody, welcome to episode number 26 of the Fitness Devil Podcast. Today we got a double feature. We've got uh, Sarah and Jay Ashman. They're a married couple of fitness professionals out of Kansas City, so they're really super. We featured Jay back in episode number five, so if you want to dig in a little bit more, go back and check out that episode after this one. And we talk about their projects that they've been working on and releasing, so there's several of those. But we also get into a really deep conversation with Sarah about gut microbiome and nutrition and health and concerns like gluten and the science and misconceptions about gluten sensitivity, celiac disease. And then we also delve into their relationship within the fitness industry and their success. So stay tuned and enjoy. Shut up and sit down. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. And speaking of back of the podcast, back at episode five, we introduced you to some of our, our, our good friend, uh, Jay Ashman. He's returned with his wife, Sarah, today. And if you haven't checked out episode five, it's a really good listen. If you want to learn more about Jay, uh, you can go there. But he's a Kansas City-based strength in, strength coach, personal trainer. He's partnered in his online project, Elite Athlete Development. Uh, together, Jay and Sarah run Pump, Dump, and Hump on their Facebook group. But Sarah who we're glad to have here, welcome Sarah, is a registered dietitian with a master's in dietetics administration. And uh, she's running her business, the nutritionatrix.com. That's a hard one on the tongue. And uh, they also recently together paired their areas of expertise to offer metabolic edge transformation science. So guys, let's start there and uh, let's have you guys explain what that is and anything else you want to throw in to introduce yourselves. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. Um, we're super pumped to be here today. Um, so Metabolic Edge, I guess I'll kind of jump in. It is a combination of what we both love doing, which is helping people, obviously, um, kind of achieve whether it's their physical goals or sports related. Um, this program is a little more middle of the road kind of gin pop. Um, more so probably people who want to lose some weight or want to build some muscle or some combination of the two and super affordable. It's going to include, um, you know, programmed workouts, programmed meal plans and sort of run in a group format where, you know, there's sort of a community feel to it. And also, you know, us being involved in the program, kind of giving people some guidance, helping them sort of troubleshoot what their barriers are. But then another element that we're sort of adding in there is being proactive about your health. So let's say you're somebody who's, you know, you're a guy in your 40s. This is when guys, doctors, if you are going to the doctor, you know, at least every once in a while, which hopefully you are getting an annual checkup, they start telling you like, oh, you should be looking at your lipids and you should be getting a colonoscopy and you should be, you know, doing all this stuff. We want to also kind of help people understand what questions to ask, what labs to get, um, how to interpret your labs from a little bit different perspective, since that's sort of my industry working in the laboratory field for quite some time now. Um, just because your doctor's office calls and says everything looks good doesn't mean it actually is. Um, that's kind of how the lab world works. So we want to kind of help people be very proactive about preventing chronic health problems before they start. But if you already happen to have one, we definitely want to help you solve that and get to a place where it's no longer a thing for you. Um, so that's sort of the, I don't know, do you want to add anything else? Yeah, the training part of itself is actually kind of got to cycle through one month plans 
And uh, every two months, we'll have a theme. So we're going to go through hypertrophy training, uh, strength-based training, and also athlete-type training, and then also a little bit like more circuit-type workouts. I mean, not circuit like CrossFit style, but more like giant sets, you know, quad sets, stuff like that. So every two months, it'll change up. So they're not going to actually train within one set of variables and type training type forever. It'll keep changing, so it'll adapt to a bunch of different things. And I use two-month blocks instead of one to actually have the adaptation because a one-month block of strength training isn't really that much, and neither is a four-week block of hypertrophy training. So we'll do things in an eight-week block to uh, allow them to adapt to it and then change it up. And each block will play into the next one. So, for example, hypertrophy block will shoot into the strength block, and then from the strength block, we'll shoot into the athlete training block because now they can actually train with a little more power. And then the athlete training block will go into the circuit type block to get more quote-unquote fit. So that's kind of what we do with the training part of it. So hopefully, it'll work out pretty well. We're thinking, we're thinking actually we have a good thing in our hands here. Yeah, we're, we're pretty excited about this. And we're basically just waiting on the app to be done, which is going to happen... Probably the next like three or four days, we yeah. actually have a using trainer eyes for this, and they're branding the app with our name. So it takes a little bit of time to get yeah. done. I just like so we're thinking. Oh no, go ahead. Monday. I don't know. Monday. Hopefully Monday. We'll- Jesus, I just like the fact that like, all the other stuff, but the the whole idea of doing eight week blocks is something a lot of people don't think about because they'll just do it monthly just because they think they have to. But it's that whole adaptation adaptation part that sounds pretty crazy. So that's well, cool. You, oh, and, yeah. And for anyone who's listening, you know, you do a program for one month and you switch. I mean, that's barely enough time to really just get through neural adaptation. You're learning new skills. It yeah. feels like you're improving on stuff rapidly. And this is something that was mm-hmm. sort of a criticism of mine for what I consider a lot of bad coaches out there is they'll do they'll change things up so frequently so that way the client learns a new skill but then now they're always showing them something new so there's this illusion the trainer is necessary because they're always teaching something new that they rapidly progress at but all you're doing is getting neural adaptations and learning new skills and you're not continuing to build upon that to actually see physical changes of of real strength of real muscle building so now it makes more sense to have longer blocks that's a pretty good point. And I would say that in, in my years, so before I was a dietitian, I um, owned a CrossFit gym and, and we were kind of like a, we did a lot of like old school strength and conditioning too. And um, even after I closed that down, I still coached for another three or four years with, with private clients and groups. And I will say that definitely you hit it on the head that four weeks is not enough time. Um, to see some sort of results in anything, whether it's getting stronger or losing body fat or, you know, perfecting a lift or something like that. Um, eight weeks is right about right. Six to eight weeks, maybe a little bit longer. Um, but that's the thing is I think that a lot of trainers are under the impression that they, and, and people are this way. So I, I kind of think it's more of a supply and demand. Like yeah. people are so ADD about their, like you, you guys, you probably do this. I mean, sometimes us that have coached or our coaches are, are the worst about this. Um, you know, we switch plans all the time. Like we jump from one thing to the other and, and we kind of like some new flashy system comes out and we're like, Oh great, I'm going to do that. And we do the first four weeks and then some new thing comes out and we're like, Oh, let me go do that too. So, um, you know, I will say over the last couple of years, I, so, you know, Jay did my programming for some time and then obviously he stopped when we, 
started dating because it was can't coach your partner. You can't no. at all. <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever tried to coach a girlfriend or wife or significant other, you probably found that out. She didn't listen anyway. She actually yeah, I didn't. She actually confessed to me later on. <laughs> I mean, so I give her stuff to do like front squats, and yeah. uh, you know, we started dating, and she's like, "Well, I never date him anyway because I hate front squats." <laughs> and I'm like, "What?" Well, Holy shit. Yeah. Um, so she did not following the program with our rope because she didn't like certain things. I'm like, well, that's great. So, yeah. and then she's like, Jay, you didn't even so get any results. I hate you. And you're like, you didn't even do my program. <laughs> yeah. But I will say that, um, you know, after that, I think I, I did, I did my own program for a little while, which that's a terrible idea. If you're a coach or you know how to coach, oh, yeah. you should probably pay someone to, to do your programming because you will program all the stuff you like doing and none of the stuff that you should be doing. Um, which is definitely what I do. But I did, um, I did Jen Sinclair and Courtney Thomas's bigness project, which was, I think 16 weeks or 14 weeks, something like that. Um, and then I've been following one of those RP templates that I bought several years ago and never used. And I'm like, I just need something to do right now. Um, and I think that one, I think there's four or five different meso cycles in it. And each one is five weeks. So it's been, and I, I may be on the last one. So it's been almost, I don't know, do the math, four or five months on that now. Um, which, you know, I think that's about right is you need to give yourself 90 days, you know, to really see some significant results. And these little four-week blocks and jump from one thing to another, people people tend not to see results. And then those are the people that complain, yeah. right? I'm actually kind of on the other end of the spectrum for this sort of stuff. I've been with subtle modifications doing largely the same thing for five, nearly 15 years. So I'm not a program <laughs> yeah. hopper. I'm very, very consistent within like a lot of you know, basics. And sure, I've, I've done some modifications to, you know, now I train uh, two back days and two leg days a week. It's pretty consistent for me. I didn't always do that. But the essence of what I've been doing, I've been doing for a very long time and, you know, for me, it's worked pretty well. I feel pretty good. I'm not exactly the smallest creature in the universe. So <laughs> that consistency is added up to something good. But yeah, I think a lot of, you're right. A lot of professionals are tempted to jump on and experience the latest thing or search for something new. And I'm a big believer in fairly consistent programming. I don't tend to, I never wholesale change up my clients' programs. And I probably don't change the program nearly as as frequently as I think a lot of other people do. But again, I found that my, my clients in those situations have done pretty well on them. Um, speaking hey. of that and programs, so we kind of went over this as your project, but Jay's also got something released. I think I saw it on Facebook, what, like three or four days ago, your Ashman Strength Book 2. So give us a little shout out about what that is and how that improves upon the Strength Book 1. Oh, it's pretty simple. Book 1 was uh, essentially written as my own program. Yeah. Because uh, at the time I was uh, training at World Gym in West Babylon, New York, which is Long Island. And uh, I just pretty much stopped playing rugby at the time. I was uh, too beat up. And uh, I was in kind of limbo with the gym training. I was training for a goal for so long, you know, with sports or strongman, but I had no real direction as far as what I'm going to do. So I developed this program for myself kind of using undulating periodization cycle between reps, moderate reps and like a max effort type lift. So a lot of the inspiration for that came from stuff I learned from uh, reading about Westside Barbell and talking to Louie in the phone. You know, a lot of my inspiration for training comes from the conjugate system in Louie. Yeah. You know, 
So that had a big play in the book as well. I actually gave him credit for that in the first book. So I gave the, I used to program for myself for a while, and then a couple of friends of mine wanted to check it out, so I gave it to them. And then they, uh, one of my friends was a powerlifter, and because of this program, he stopped powerlifting and started competing in bodybuilding. You know, a CrossFitter that I know, he uh, stopped doing CrossFit, started doing powerlifting. And then, <laughs> and that was kind of funny. And an entire gym in Chicago called uh, CrossFit Construct, they uh, ran the book as a strength program for the gym. Really? So it got some, and the guy that owned the gym, Derek, would message me and say how well it works. So I basically put the book out, and uh, it was well received. And people liked it. I didn't really have any bad reviews of it. I didn't market it like some people do. You know, I, don't, I can't really do the whole marketing game and the long ad copy and affiliate marketing. That's not my style. But uh, so a second book essentially is the first book tweaked. So the first book has one template in it that explains to you why and how to use it. The second one is an extension of that. So we have five extra templates in there that play off of the first one for different needs. One of which is like a power building style. One of which is uh, learning how to be a faster lifter. You know, if you lift, if you lift, if you lift slow and grindy, how uh, we can improve that. Another one is I call it the bro tweak. It's more like classic bodybuilding slash power building. And the other one, my favorite one is the athlete template. And that's actually going to be a book down the line for myself is I'm going to take that entire template and make a book out of it because it goes into so many different variables and twists and turns that I can't put it all into one section. So that's my favorite template at all because it goes into what I love doing the best is training athletes. I mean, the last one is my powerlifting peaking program that I've used for numerous clients, testing groups, small groups, and whatnot. And that works very well, but it's also a little unorthodox in a way because I use the RPE system to the percentages, and a lot of people kind of debate that because people don't really monitor their own intensity as well as they should. Yeah. But I prefer that. For a lot of people, the RP system, once they learn it, it seemed to work for them very, very well. I never had a problem with any client using it, so it's in the book. And the program itself won't beat you up for the meat. Because we don't really get into the super heavy stuff until the last third of a cycle. So the first two phases, the first four weeks, are pretty much building up to it, you know, by some max volume, repetitive lifting. And then the last four weeks, we're taking all that work and we're going to peak it. So by the time you roll around for the meet, you don't feel like, you know, you got hit by a baseball bat across your entire body. <laughs> but that's what people want to feel, always, Jay. Yeah, I've always seen that complain about, oh, I feel like shit. You know, I'm like, yeah, well, it's great. <laughs> How you know you're going to recover quick enough to have a good meet? So, look, so the book is that consideration. So people that are doing that peaking program, they should not feel beat up in the last couple of weeks of the program. This stuff actually sounds uh, actually quite detailed and quite specific, and there's a lot of different uh, things that you go into. This is actually really cool about both of these things that we've talked about, the Metabolic Edge and, and now your uh, Strength Book too, is you guys are creating a lot of content and information that anyone who follows you or comes along and, and disco maybe discovers you from this podcast can look into this stuff. And You guys offer a lot of different things. 
Now, another end of all this stuff is Sarah's work with nutrition. So, and this is one of the big things we want to get on in here. And we'll probably do a standalone episode at some point. Probably, Sarah, we can get deeper into this stuff. But just coaxed you into an episode. Totally. Well, that was always the plan anyway. But uh, (laughs) you you deal with things like gut microbiome, which is not necessarily all that well understood. So just curious if you could explain that and why it's important to understand. Oh man! Um, <laughs> the short, the short answer, not the the PhD. I'm gonna take a nap on my back. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to put into a few sound bites, but but essentially, what people need to understand is, you know, yeah, microbiome as a, as a you know medical research field is just we're barely scratching the surface of what we can eventually know about it. Um, you know, part of that is just technological limitations of how to study it, but. Um, the gut microbiome is sort of the foundation for literally everything. And I'll kind of put it in perspective this way. So the microbes that live in our gut are responsible for training our immune system. Um, basically from birth through the rest of life, they control whether or not our immune system, 80 ish percent of which resides in our gut, um, whether that immune system decides to fight bad guys or fight ourselves. Uh, which would be autoimmunity, um, how it reacts to anything we come in contact with. So whether it's food or environmental chemicals, toxins, exposures, whatever, um, you know, it it 100% boils down to the diversity of microbes in our gut and how well they've been established and trained. And then what we do to our bodies that either help that microbiome thrive or suppress it and, and knock it out. And, um, I mean, some of the most interesting research, just to kind of put that in perspective, is they look at, um, you know, from birth to three to five years of age is when your microbiome forms. And during that time, um, if you there's there's a number of big things that that sort of impact that whether or not you're born vaginally or cesarean has a lot to do with it, whether or not you're breastfed. Um, But then also how dirty your environment is. And um, as Americans and uh, Canadians are probably similar in terms of Western philosophies of germs, um, we freak out about germs, right? Everywhere we go, there's hand sanitizer and we're constantly scrubbing. Like if you have a a mom who's kind of a neat freak, that's actually a bad thing. Um, The dirtier our environment, the more microbes we come in contact with and the more diverse our microbiome is, not just our gut, but our our body in general, our whole body is covered with with microbes. Um, The more we're exposed to, the better off we are. So things like having pets playing outside in the dirt. Um, you know, if you're a baby and you drop your binky on the floor and your parents don't immediately freak out and go bleach it and give you a brand new one, um, you know, eventually if you're a smart parent, you just kind of like blow it off and give it back to the kid and yeah, they get some dirt, but it makes them, you know, makes them better. Um, so that, those types of concepts are sort of what I spend a lot of my time talking about is how do we maximize that diversity? And then, but as an adult, let's say that that diversity has been kind of knocked out because you've taken a lot of antibiotics and it's still not common practice for people to take probiotics or eat fermented foods during their antibiotic treatments. Um, let's say that you've been exposed to some pretty strong chemicals that affect the microbiome. There's a number of them out there, you know, outside of just pesticides in our environment. But, um, as an adult, let's say you've had that, how do we get things back on track and how do we reset that environment or try to reseed it so that these chronic health problems that you've got right now, we can manage them and, and get them under control if possible. I mean, there's, there's still a lot of what ifs 
and scientific uncertainty around exactly how much we can cure things if somebody's already an adult and it's pretty well established. But, um, you know, I've seen some pretty cool cases, both with patients I've worked with and, and just colleagues of mine, where they've been able to overcome some pretty significant problems just by doing the right things to the gut first and getting that environment, you know, back on track. That's crazy. And that goes to kind of the next point is just the issues with the gut and the gastrointestinal health issues, IBS, Crohn's, I want to add in like wheat and gluten intolerances or whatever. Um, it's not well understood or at least not well understood by the general public. So with that, there's a lot of misinformation kind of floating around. Do you want to shed some light on some of the actual nutritional science on some of these topics and like what they say? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I listened to the the podcast you did with Jay and I think Ian, you were, you were kind of not a believer in the whole like gluten sensitivity or leaky gut thing. Right. <laughs> That's probably more um, me. I'm a bit, I, pro- I, I'm think a was, bit I think it was, I think it was Andrew. I, I'm open to anything. I believe it all somewhat well, within reason. Okay. I, I, perhaps, <laughs> I, I explain, sure. perhaps explain it's just that I, th- I think that a lot of things get blamed on gluten that aren't caused by gluten. Mm-hmm. That celiac yeah. disease is obviously a very real important thing. Things like gast, uh, is it uh, non-celiac uh, sensitivity, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I feel like that stuff's more mm-hmm. overblown. A lot of that is FODMAP is is really the Man, issue, which is a Sarah's gonna category. let you know what it is right yeah, now. So that's that's defending <laughs> that. But go ahead, throw it out there. <laughs> Um, so yeah, here's here's the deal. So I work for a laboratory called Viber in America, and we have this super remarkable test called the wheat zoomer and the wheat zoomer essentially is kind of seven tests in one. It looks at celiac. Um, we actually have a hundred percent specificity and sensitivity for picking up celiac in the blood, like before anybody else can, um, anywhere from 14 months to four years before standard labs can pick it up. Cause we use microchip technology. Um, Anyway, it also looks at that leaky gut, right? So intestinal permeability is the kind of clinical term for that. And then it looks at all of the ways somebody could react to gluten and then all of the other proteins in wheat that are not gluten because there's gluten's not the only protein there. Um, so what I will say is this. I think, and I, and I think this test would actually back this up. We've done some research, and I don't know that it's been published yet, but the way that the medical field is classifying celiac and gluten sensitivity right now is completely wrong. Um, celiac is hundred percent a gluten mediated autoimmune disease, right? So gluten is the trigger and celiac is what results our, our villi, which are the little finger like projections in our gut basically become shaved down as they atrophy from all of the autoimmune destruction to that intestinal lining when we consume gluten. Okay. So we know that happens. The, the whole gluten sensitivity question, my thing is we've run this test on thousands of people at this point, and what we should be calling gluten sensitivity, we should be dividing into two different categories. We've got people who are pre-celiac, right? Like they don't have celiac antibodies yet, but they are heading towards celiac disease and gluten is absolutely a problem for them. And then we've got people who are non-celiac gluten sensitive, which means they don't carry any of the genes to develop celiac disease. So that's not a risk, but they definitely still make antibodies to gliadin, which is the, the gluten protein peptide breakdown component that people are immunologically reacting to. Um, 
So when we say non-celiac gluten sensitivity, most people have, it's, it's a completely wrong assumption that those people aren't celiac or aren't ever going to be celiac. That's sort of where I think people are assuming that like, oh, if you don't have celiac right now, you're never going to have celiac. But that's not true. People develop celiac. The most common age to be diagnosed with it right now is in their 40s and 50s. Um, and so the question is more so why are people getting it? Not so much, you know, how does it develop and things like that. Um, so I would, I would actually challenge the medical field to rethink this whole gluten sensitivity because a lot of people we're catching are actually just pre-celiac. If you think about it, we have pre-diabetes. That's an actual diagnosis, right? Before you become diabetic, you have pre-diabetes because you have certain markers in your blood that look a certain way. Why don't we develop a set of criteria to, to diagnose pre-celiac? Why couldn't we catch people because right now our diagnostic testing, if we if we wait until somebody's markers on their labs are celiac, they have total villus atrophy. Like they're bad off. It's a bad situation for them. And they're pretty miserable. They've got a lot of problems. Why couldn't we change diagnostic criteria to, to, to catch them three years in advance, five years in advance? Because it takes from, from the onset of symptoms when somebody goes to their doctor and says, oh, you know, I'm having a lot of diarrhea when I eat. I've got, you know, they get diagnosed with IBS or something. It takes five to seven years of that before they develop celiac antibodies, right? So during that five to seven years, they're going to get negative celiac tests, but maybe they're actually developing celiac and we're just not running the right tests on them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And in, in to further that, <clears throat> you get the danger of telling someone, hey, you're not celiac. So then they think, mm -hmm. oh, I'm in the clear where they completely exactly. misunderstand that. No, they actually they're on that road. So that's actually really important to understand and then it's I even like just the simplification of like we have pre-diabetes and we have pre-celiac because you're right they don't right. have that classification but if you say pre-diabetic everyone knows like oh shit but they wouldn't tie that to celiac and that's kind of just interesting I guess the other thing is too yeah. is it kind of alludes to what I was saying earlier there's also a whole bunch of other stuff that will wheat but more so the carbohydrate and again these FODMAPs these things are also playing havoc for some people and there's issues that aren't related to gluten as well that is correct is it not yeah, so so that's and that's and that's another whole thing that that wheat zoomer test that we have. We look at wheat sensitivity, which is not gluten sensitivity, right? Gluten's found in wheat, rye, and barley, um, but wheat sensitivity would be specific to wheat. And these are peptides that we measure antibodies to um, that would not show up on testing for gluten sensitivity. And matter of fact, we actually ran data from our lab earlier last year and it showed that about 10% of people who've had this test done have no anti-gliadin or, or anti-gluten essentially antibodies, but they have these anti-wheat antibodies. So these are folks who would slip through, you know, they would basically slip through the cracks of celiac and gluten sensitivity testing and they would be told, oh, it's okay, you're not gluten sensitive or celiac, you can go ahead and still eat that. But in fact, they are wheat sensitive. And if they continue to eat that, like Jay, Jay also had anti-gliadin. So he was he was also gluten sensitive, but he'd had the anti-wheat antibodies and so do I. So we're both, you know, we're, we're both gluten free, obviously. But had we not had that testing done, and we weren't, you know, gluten sensitive, also, we would have slipped through the cracks. Now, the FODMAP question, and I know that everybody sort of latched onto this a few years ago when somebody, some guy published an article and was like, gluten sensitivity is bullshit. It's really just FODMAPs. 
Um, again, I would argue that the science that that was based on was in no way looking at a comprehensive look at all of the immunological ways that somebody can react to gluten. So it was looking at like one type of gliadin where there's like multiple isoforms of it. And I won't really get into that, but it was the article itself was kind of bullshit. However, FODMAPs, um, when somebody has a FODMAP intolerance, nine times out of 10, they have something called SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And what that means is they've got bacteria in the wrong place. So the, the bacteria from the large intestine have made it into the small intestine and they're fermenting carbohydrates. And those carbohydrates, which we eat a lot of wheat, right, in, in the Western diet, um, they feel worse when they eat that. Um, diarrhea or constipation and they'll get bloating and, and sometimes heartburn and things like that. And, and sometimes it's extra intestinal, right? Like they get headaches or something. So FODMAPs can make it worse. Um, and, and it's not, and that's not immune system based. So there's no test that you can run. that's going to tell you if you have a FODMAP intolerance really, because there's no antibodies being generated. It's just bacteria fermenting something and you get some symptom or side effect from it. Um, gluten is a FODMAP or wheat, you know, specifically, but if you follow a low FODMAP diet and you feel better, it's not necessarily an indication that FODMAPs are the problem and not gluten. It could simply be that gluten still might be a problem. It's just, it's hard to tell because a strict elimination of one food is difficult to isolate just that one food without other taking, without taking out other foods, if that makes sense. But it's, so gluten is not the problem for everyone too. I just, I do want to state that our tests, we have plenty of people that have this test run that are not gluten sensitive. Right. Okay. Um, and so that's important to understand is it's been vilified. And I know there's quite a few sort of integrative and functional practitioners out there that run around and say like gluten is the devil. Um, believe me, if I could eat it, I would every day. It's delicious. Um, foods that have gluten are amazing. Um, so it's, it's not a problem for everyone, but it's certainly a problem for some. I will say that. I like gluten-free bread. I've never tried it. I think it's terrible. good. It sounds terrible. As we just disregard everything. This is why we're going to have you on just you because we could talk about this shit for like, well, you could probably talk about it for hours, but one hour would probably oh, yeah. suffice, right? Well, this, yeah. this, this is, this is fantastic because I mean, like I'm learning stuff from here and, and this like, sure, sharing this stuff with everybody else is great, but I mean, one of the selfish things Andy Morgan said this is we get to borrow an hour of people's time to explore this stuff. And it's shedding a lot of light onto some stuff that even I've held some a little bit more hardline views because I tend to be a little bit black and white with some of this stuff. And so it's expanding how I would approach this and how I think about the, that particular aspect of nutrition. So let's actually switch a bit because I know Jay doesn't have a ton of time, but we were noticing that you guys are releasing products, a lot of stuff's going on. Your careers are really taking off, both of you guys. And I was curious as to what degree you attribute your relationship with each other to this as a catalyst and, and the support you guys have for each other. I'm gonna answer Jay's that like hell no, it's all me. Well, I'm trying to figure out trying to figure to answer that question. How do you follow up on Adolfo's uh, feelings? I'm like holy, holy shit. He's the one that's eat famous, not me. I'm not eat famous at all. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> well, I guess we uh, kind of play off each other a little bit. We both uh, obviously are active and fit in lifestyle itself, and I guess you could say we're both fitness professionals, even though she's not making her living in this industry like I am. She's still pretty active in it. So we kind of have shared goals in mind what we want to do with our health and diet and training. So it kind of played off that we just support each other with this mutual goal that we have. Now, our relationship with that is pretty good. I mean, we have ups and downs like every couple. I mean, we're not the picture-perfect couple. 
I mean, we have days where one of us is not feeling embarrassed or vice versa, you know, moodiness. It just happens. But uh, as far as it goes, our relationship is really strong. And I think doing this stuff together will only help cement that even more. Yeah, I would I would say, you know, as a couple, it we present sort of a united front. Um, and I kind of thought about this because you sort of sent us some, some questions to think about ahead of time. And, um, you know, I've I don't follow a ton of fit pros anymore online. There's a few. Um, but I will say, like, overwhelmingly, you don't see a lot of couples that are like really devoted to each other and sort of united in their efforts. Um, you see, like, individually, they kind of have things, but then together, you don't see them a lot. And there's a lot of like, I mean, the fitness industry is probably not any different than any other industry, but there's there's a lot of shady shit going on too, where Wait. you know infidelity or you know they talk shit about each other, and so. I don't know. I mean, like we kind of approach it from we're partners, you know, in life, obviously we're partners, but as business partners with some of these programs we have, um, you know, I, I don't know. I have like the utmost respect and admiration for him and well, she's all right. And I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, think of it that way because yeah. I mean, you're like, we were really, oh, my, I was just like, my best friend. So I was saying we're throwing you a bone. Oh. We're just throwing you a bone to like really just light it up. And really, she just took over and what, like made you sound awesome. And you, you didn't really, you kind of <laughs> dropped it a bit. So that was our like right after Valentine's <laughs> Day. You know what? Say something great to her. And you're like, eh. Like she's my partner, man. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> the reason why. I, I think that's simple though. <laughs> no, it is. Um, oh, we support her goals pretty much wholeheartedly. I mean, uh, I have special goals in mind for this year that obviously I won't talk about, but nevertheless, I have goals for this year of mine and she supports them. And even though they're kind of lofty and quite magnificent type goals, uh, it's something that I've always wanted to do. Yeah. And she's behind me hundred percent. And it's just kind of, it's, it's stuff like that's meaningful because, uh, I mean, it's just, it's hard to explain unless you in a relationship like that, where you feel like the person has your back unequivocally and unconditionally. And that's, uh, that makes people do and take great chances of things. Yeah. It's, um, I, I will say this is like knowing that he's behind me every step of the way and he supports what I do. Um, and I support what he does. I, I kind of look at it like this. If your partner, if you don't support what they do, um, you know, their success is your success too. If you think about it, um, you know, if, if you're not behind them and, and they're in their corner helping them and rooting for them, um, how are they going to succeed? Like, do you, do you want to like, you know, do you want your partner not to succeed? I, I guess I just sort of approach it from that angle. And I mean, together, I feel like there's nothing we can't do. Right. Um, I mean, and, obviously, I mean, I want her to succeed. And even if, even if, uh, like if she would sell more books to me or whatever, that means nothing. I mean, I just, I don't know. I can't stuff like that where I think that the whole makes the individual greater. Mm hmm. Like if anybody knows me as a person, you know, away from online, it's, I'm a pretty big team player when it comes to certain things like business and whatnot. And I think the whole is greater than individual parts in a, in a, by far. Like I could never imagine like not sharing my success with her or vice versa. It's just not, it's not feasible or possible for me to think that way. 
Yeah, same here. Well, I noticed, and the reason why I asked this question, especially because I've had uh, Jay on social media for a long time, and Sarah, you a little less uh, uh, as long, but Jay is really, really amazing at pushing you, and you guys are always talking about each other, and it's, like you said, it's a united front, it's very supportive, and I really like that, and it's funny, I, I have noticed there's a handful of fairly famous couples, they're not always famous for being couples, but they're famous people in the fitness industry, and yeah, they almost have no presence with it, each other, and I'm not going to say any I, names. I know why, though. If you're, uh, oh, maybe I don't know why, but I think it's totally business. Like they're trying to come off single and put their pictures on there. Not these people. Not these, not people. these people. There's that aspect of it too, though. There's some like big, let's just call them Instagram stars and coaches and stuff, and you'll never see their significant other. And you're like, hey, are they married? And then every, like, they just want to be themselves because then, then they can appear more sexy. I don't know if that's a true, but that's kind of what I get I when I see. There's truth to that, yes, without a doubt. Yeah, I would say truth in that. I think a lot of the problem with that too is you have too many people out there online, especially in social media, who criticize couples for being public couples. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I see that every fucking day, practically. <laughs> First, you talk about your couple, talk about your wife, your husband too much, there's obviously something wrong with your marriage. If you post a picture of your wife, there's too much, there's something wrong with your marriage. And people are cynical. Yeah. And they really want to think, I mean, that's because deep down inside, they're miserable. They're, they're miserable themselves, yeah. they're or, miserable they, or they or they did shit. the same exact thing that they're talking about. Yeah, was overcompensating by acting like they're this loving spouse, but in reality, they really weren't. Right. So I think that kind of stuff makes people think twice about being public. They don't want people to assume, like, wow, this person really loves their wife on the surface. There must be something wrong with them behind the scenes. Yeah. And I'll be the first person to say, no marriage or relationship is perfect. You know, we fight once in a while. We have arguments once in a while. I mean, it's just the way relationships go. But I could never imagine being out being with anybody else but her. And I mean, that's easy to say when you're with that person. But, you know, 43 years old and living a pretty colorful life, you know, I know what I want. And, uh, you know, I waited a long time for something like this. And as I tell you, I mean, it means a lot to me. Yeah, it's... um. I, I think I understand what you're saying about like, I, I can think of probably two or three couples off the top of my head where they're both like fairly well known, but they don't include each other in their fame, if you will. Um, and I, you know, I don't know what, I mean, maybe they were well established before getting married, like individually, and maybe that's just not part of their marketing. I, I guess, I'm not sure. I can't really, I can't imagine not. You know. I don't know. I think I think at a certain point, marketing takes a backseat to reality. Yeah. yeah. That's the biggest problem I have with the marketing part of this business is that it sometimes seems too manufactured. Yeah. Yeah. Like and I can't. You went right anti-marketing. I don't know if you took it down or not, but you're like, I ain't fucking doing copy for this. If you don't want my fucking book, don't buy it. I was like, oh, Jay. Well, that's that's <laughs> pretty. That's part of your message too. Well, I, I, well, I think too. My name and my style has been pretty much established for a while. Yeah. That the way I come off. That's his voice. So I can't, so. I can't change that. You know, even if I wanted to, I really can't because it will come off as fake. So it's like, why should I change my marketing style just to sell more books? I mean, if you like my shit, buy it. If you don't, well, buy something else. I don't really care. But that's why it was funny. Honestly, it was almost successful because of that. Because you like literally said, I, I'm I, not going to sell the book. If I wanted to make money in a book, I wouldn't sell an ebook for $15.99. I sold yeah. it for $40. Jeez. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and the most books you buy now are thirty bucks and up, and that's that's fine. But I put it out there for cheap, and if you like it, great. If you don't, well, then that's, I'm happy for you. I did you. the same with both of my eBooks recently too. Is 
just, Hey, here it is. It's 15 bucks on my website. And if you want it great, if not, I don't really care. It's not a major revenue stream for me. No, I mean, I make a pretty good living off my training business and, uh, I can't complain about that. And I'm not looking, I don't need content to do well. I'm not, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm not a bad writer, but I don't need to make a living on my writing. I can make a living off of uh, working with people one on one, training them, and I do. I like that. I enjoy that. The writing part of it for me is just an extra. Cool. Now, Jay, I think you're running really short on time, right? Like, how much time you got? I got like five minutes. Yeah, so I'm okay. pretty good. So let's go through this really quickly, and then you can bounce, and then we can clue up uh, for the last few seconds with Sarah. But I okay. wanted to ask you guys if there was a specific training or nutrition concept that you have totally changed your understanding or approach to having gained knowledge over the years uh, and from experience, is there anything that you've really shifted over the years? Yeah, I'll answer first since uh, this is easy for me. Uh, bodybuilding, by far. And I say that, and you'll probably laugh, because uh, <laughs> every one of us started off in a gym, or most of us, for one reason, to look better. Bench press. And some people obviously say, well, I got started to get stronger. That's great, but you're not most people. Most people came in the gym to look better. That's just a fact. Yeah. So I started off that way and then gradually shifted to sports training, powerlifting, strongman stuff. And once I discovered, rediscovered the art of actual bodybuilding is when I my mindset, mindset really shifted away from moving as much weight as possible and being constantly hurt to actually looking better and trying not to be constantly hurt. <laughs> so uh, I changed my philosophy and training and how I train people over the years as well. You know, most of the stuff with strength training, you know, I kind of learned along the way and everything like that, but the bodybuilding part of it, and actually not just the programming part of it, but actually training like a bodybuilder, like moving the weight with purpose, the whole stretch, contract, you know, uh, using lighter weights, feeling the weight, feeling the muscle rather than just moving the weight. Like there's a, a video of Kai Green on YouTube that I've used for numerous clients that I think is probably the best video I've ever seen about the simple art of bodybuilding. It's called I'll Never Be a Weightlifter. And he takes this guy who's doing dumbbell curls or the incline bench, and you look at a guy curling, and it looks like most people in the gym. It's not bad form. It's not horrible. But he definitely tell he needs some work with it. So Kai breaks him down from using a 30-pound dumbbell, using a 15-pound dumbbell, and getting a better workout for the 15-pound dumbbell or a 30-pound dumbbell. Shows him how to like stretch the muscle, how to contract the muscle, how to move the weight, how to actually hold the weight. So it, stuff like that. When I first saw that video, you know, I might be relatively new, but I mean, you know, I I was training like a bodybuilder before that, but that video is like set it off in my head like immediately, like wow, I need to refine how I'm training even more, more than any other program in the market, more than reading stuff by John Meadows, more than reading stuff on whatever form I went to, that one particular video immediately set a shift in my head, was like, all right, I'm not training the most efficient way possible to gain muscle size, I need to do this better, and that video was a catalyst for it. I like all this stuff he does, even that... He just is real talk with that kind of stuff. And I think if you pull anything from bodybuilding, especially some of the ones doing it right, is like they're they're huge and they're not necessarily lifting a lot of weight. And I think even Andrew was posting a video like a couple weeks ago with you doing arm curls. 
And you're like, if you do it right, it's going to fucking kill. And you weren't doing, you're a big dude and you weren't even doing that much weight. I think you're using like 35. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. It was a hammer curl. It was uh, like a 225 and easy curl bar. Yeah. But it was a drag curl. And uh, I did like 12 reps from that, I think. 10 or 12 reps. And I love a drag curl because I can get a massive pump from that. And it's one of the most effective bicep exercises for me. And a lot of, a lot of people like it as well. But it's the way you do it. Like you come down control, you get a full stretch, come up and you flex the top. You actually go through the whole range of motion the correct way. And you don't need to use a lot of weight. In fact, you can't. Well, and, and one of the things I kind of uh, alluded to was like, don't let the weight do the movement, like do the movement for the weight. And a lot of people just let, right. they don't create enough tension because they just, they just want to get the weight up and down because that's what it's supposed to be. And it's not necessarily supposed to do that. Well, you're I, supposed to control it. I, I love making fun of the shit that I see yeah, in commercial gyms whenever I visit them. And you see people swinging around with momentum way more weight than they should ever be. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Jay, do you, you got to run, my friend? We can let uh, Sarah answer that question yeah, if you got to bounce. I should teach a class in 25 minutes. So I actually have to get to work. <laughs> well, and Dude, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate your time. And uh, well, I'll be seeing you in a couple months anyway down in uh, Kansas City. And we'll see the story you post on the way there. Usually Jay likes to take, if you go on his Instagram, he'll take a little little bit of a walk with a selfie and take a little fitness tip. So I'm looking forward to that one, Jay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'll see you guys when you come to Kansas City pretty soon. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. brother. Take care. All right, Sarah. So did you have something that sort of fit yeah. that as well? Any good example of that? Um, probably a couple. You said fitness or nutrition or absolutely. just fitness. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Go wherever you want. So I, I would definitely say similar to what Jay said. Um, my background was a little bit different. So, I mean, I won't harp on the whole like bodybuilding versus other styles of training. But having come from, I did some like, you know, standard lifting before going in the military. This was when I was really young, like 19 or 20. Um, kind of followed something that was power building ish, you know, for the early part of my twenties and then, um, got involved in CrossFit in like the early two thousands, early to mid two thousands and had a CrossFit affiliate, did that, drank the Kool-Aid. Um, it stopped being cool. So I stopped doing it. Um, even though I still owned an affiliate and then I sort of, I've always loved the aesthetics part of weightlifting. I growing up was always very tall and skinny and was one of those people that was a super hard gainer, right? Couldn't put on muscle to save my life. Um, and so I loved the way that like athletic, you know, figure competitors looked like the women that competed in that. I just, I like, was like, Oh man, I really want to look like them. And it wasn't until I kind of stopped doing CrossFit and bridged more into sort of an a hypertrophy or bodybuilding style of training that I really sort of started getting some of that. And, um, I find that a, I get injured less, which, is to be expected um but b i just enjoy it better um it's structured to me and it and i guess maybe my mind works that way to where i i have this pattern and it's structured and and you kind of know what to expect um i just enjoy that but i do do a lot of you know conditioning and stuff too i would say secondarily to that in terms of the nutrition realm um it's probably been a little over a decade now because i've sort of been in this for some time but focusing on 
like all of the micro aspects of nutrition, like everybody, you know, the, the most important thing is calories and then macros. And if you're trying to just change body composition, that's really all that matters for the most part, right? Like are your calories good? And then are your macros within your calories good? And then most people stop there, but I sort of delved even deeper into like the nutrients from plants, like phytonutrients that are functional for fighting disease or, you know, whatever, like, how do I make my skin look better? What can I eat? How do I get more energy? What can I do to fix my gut? You know, that type of thing. And, um, just sort of paying attention to that. People talk about like eat the rainbow, right? You know, like fruits and vegetables and the different types of pigments in them, but those pigments in the fruits, like what gives them color, it are actually like, really potent bioactive chemicals and I don't know getting getting into that and sort of tweaking little things in my diet to resolve you know like chronic health problems or symptoms or whatever like that's been huge for me probably in the last decade or so just paying attention to not just how do I live but how do I live well through food like my goal is to live a very 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 long time but functionally you know like I don't I don't want to die at a hundred, you know, hooked up to tubes in a nursing home. I want to die at a hundred, like, you know, having just gone out for a hike, you know, or something like that with my dog and I pass away peacefully in my sleep, but I otherwise am functional, you know, I just, it's my time to go. That's sort of my, my outlook on life is like, you know, I want my days to be enjoyable, not just alive. I want to, I want to like be able to experience life. And that's sort of what I see food as a mechanism for that, for longevity. No, that's amazing. I think that often, even I can often be guilty of, you know, not emphasizing some of those things in favor of the big rock of you know the calories side of stuff and and the big transformations oh, yeah. that we get from that. And and as you said, that stuff's really powerful. But once you get beyond that, it would be wise not to forget about all those other health implications of it. So I guess uh, yeah. And I, oh, go I, ahead. I, you know, well, I was just going to say, I I talk to a lot, a lot of my sports nutrition clients, like I I do do some sports nutrition still, just body composition stuff. Um, And a lot of them, like we have this good conversation about, um, okay, so you know, you've had calories and macros given to you maybe by a coach previously, or somebody you've worked with. And, and so you create your like your 10 to 12 foods, right, that you eat over and over, because you know exactly how much you need to eat, because that's your macro macros and calories. And you don't really think about it, you just put it on autopilot. And that's cool. I do the same thing. Um, but in doing so, we like have no diversity and variety in our diet. Um, and so we tend to lack, you know, nutrients from foods because we're really not getting all of the fruits and vegetables in the spectrum and that kind of thing. And so we talk about how do we liberalize that? How do we get more in there, but still meet those numbers, like create a system of just like, okay, I have a banana every single morning and I have for the last four years, what would be alternatives to a banana that's exactly the same amount of carbs, but I don't really have to think about it and track it. Cause I absolutely hate tracking. Like I won't do it in an app. You know what I mean? I I'm that person that needs to just have my list of this is what I eat and this meets my numbers and I don't need to think about it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's incredibly important within like, as we age calories and macros matter, but then like, you've got to get that variety too. It starts to matter, especially when you get into your late thirties and and definitely into your forties when your body just starts hating you and falling apart. Um, So that's sort of my goal is that message. Cool. So the big kind of question I always throw at the end, and obviously Jay did this when he was on his episode, 
Uh, something I've noticed is a lot of listeners to this podcast are actually sharing the fact that they picked up books that our guests have recommended or talked about. And I've seen this countless times. So people are actually listening to this stuff. It also kind of proves that they're listening to the end of the episode, which is good. So <laughs> do you have a book <laughs> that you are currently reading or have ever read that is just really profound and influential, has made a difference in your life and career? Oh, shoot. So I am terrible about finishing books. Um, I have about 25 right now on my shelf that I need to start. But the last book I read all the way through and finished um, that I recommend all the time, it's probably been a couple years, but um, it's called The Epidemic of Absence. And I'm going to mess up the guy's last name. His first name is Moises, and the last name is like Vasquez Manoff. But if you go on Amazon, it's The Epidemic of Absence. And it is so when I kind of briefly talked about like the concept of how our microbiome forms and how that diversity affects immunity and how that translates into like everything else in our life, it delves into some really cool stuff and, and research into like um, just weird little shit like women who raise barn animals while they're pregnant, their children have almost zero, um, you know, prevalence of asthma, autism, autoimmune, and allergies, right? And it has a lot to do with all the bacteria they pick up from the farm animals that make their microbiome more diverse. Like, that's just one concept they talk about. But the whole book is just a collection of that type of stuff on, you know, this epidemic of, of us being way too clean and way too sanitized and how that's actually hurt us as humans because we need certain bacteria and viruses and even in some cases parasites there's a huge section on parasites that we tend to think of as bad but they actually kind of impart some good for us like hookworm therapy for autoimmune disease it's super weird people infecting themselves with hookworms but it actually does treat certain autoimmune diseases um, so it's sort of like redefining the way we think about humans and our environment and, and how clean we are, which is actually a bad thing. I would strongly recommend it's a really good read. Like the lay person could pick it up and understand the majority of the information in the book. It's not necessarily like from a clinical perspective. Um, really good book. I That's probably the last book I really read that and the blue zones. I would I would if you haven't read the blue zones, I know a lot of people hear about it. Have you, are you guys very familiar with that concept? I am not. Oh, man. So we got to go oh, into detail on oh, this if I come back to the where, show. Where but. people live longer lives. Oh, yes. Is that, that what you mean, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay, like a lot of areas of Japan, for example. Uh, yeah, so the blue zones are like places in the world where there's a greater than normal ratio of centenarians to the rest of the population. So, yeah, centenarians are people who live to 100 and beyond. But these blue zones are specifically like what, like what I was talking about. When they're over 100, but they're super functional, right? Like they're hiking up the hills with their goats or they're like, you know, tending their great-grandchildren. Um, and, and so what this team has done is they've compiled like all these hundreds of thousands of like data points of all of these societies, like what they do from sunup to sundown, what do they eat, what do they think, all of their social characteristics. And they've created these patterns of like, these are the, the nine big things that people in Okinawa that we've correlated with, with longevity. And these are the six things in Sardinia that it correlates. And so like super, super interesting, like longevity is this really fascinating thing to me. Like how do you live really long, but how do you live really long and you still enjoy life, right? Like there's no point in being 95, like dying and you depend on machines to live, 
right? Like I want to be that person that's 95 and I'm still like playing pickleball or something, you know? Um, so that's an awesome book too. Really cool. It'll definitely get you thinking about the role that what you eat plays in that. That's a lot of where my kind of philosophies on nutrition come from lately, but also like your activity, the type of activity you do, and then your social structure, how many social connections you have and how deep and intense they are with other people, because that's huge for having a sense of purpose and wanting to get out of bed in the morning. Um, Okay. We'll just end this with where can our listeners find you guys and kind of where can they kind of get a hold of some of these projects we talked about in this podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So our website is pumpdumpump.com. <laughs> um, you can also join our Facebook group. That's completely free. It's a fun thing. I think you guys are both in there, oh, right? Yeah, it's great. Absolutely. Okay. Join yeah. it. Good. Lots of, lots of fun stuff. Um, it is a really inclusive community. You need to come in with the understanding that you're going to be respectful. If you can't be respectful, you're gone. We have people of all different backgrounds, walks of life, um, orientations, genders, you know, race, ethnicity, social, religious, it doesn't matter. Everybody's welcome as long as you can be respectful. Um, that's a pretty good place to start to kind of get to know us and, and sort of our philosophies and the way we work. The Metabolic Edge program, like I said, I think it's going to be ready to go by Monday. There's information about that on our website. Um, you can read about it, and we're going to take our, our first group of people are actually going to be people from Pump Dump Pump on Facebook. So we're not going to open it up to the public to start with. So if you are a member, you're cool. You can be in that first little trial group of people. But then after that, we'll open it up and it'll be after the first month or so. I think anybody can join. Um, Jay has his own website as do I, um, which I think we link in both of those, but mine was the nutritionatrix.com and his I think is ashmanstrength.com. So either of those, you can find us um, online. And you might as well, guys, if you're listening, you might as well go follow them on Instagram because their Instagrams are entertaining. You know, like like yeah. Dean said, Jay will do these stories on his Instagram, mumbling his way as he's walking down the street. We <laughs> 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 love them. Oh, they're great. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, guys, follow these my, guys, please. Just like glute flex selfies and and what I ate. Like it's it's pretty shallow. But um, or my tattoo actually, my tattoo is lately. I've been posting pictures of that. So cool. No, we really appreciate that you took the time to come on here. Obviously, uh, you know, I'll say thanks again to Jay for us. I know he had to run, but uh, this is good. And we are really serious. Hopefully, in the not terribly distant future, we can get you on. And we couldn't do justice to the depth and the complexity of some of these nutritional concepts. And I think this is stuff that we've had some requests for it. And I think this will be a really good area to explore in greater detail uh, if and when you're ready to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Just let me know. I would be more than happy to come back and, and we can get into some of the, the, the geeky science behind some of that stuff. And I, I, you know, yeah, you're right. The questions you guys asked, it, it really deserves a more thorough explanation. So um, anytime, let me know. Thanks so much, Sarah. We really appreciate it. Guys, thanks for tuning in. We really appreciate you showing up for what is this episode going to be now? It should be Our? number 26, oh. actually. Yeah. I don't even know yeah, anymore. It'll be number 26. So we've been a quarter century mark and, and still rolling. We've got some great stuff coming up really soon. And if you enjoyed this stuff, if you're you know newly discovering us, uh, maybe go back and check out Jay's episode. This is the fifth one. We've got a lot of other great stuff. If you like it, you know, share it with a friend, subscribe to it. Uh, and we really love five-star reviews on iTunes. They're really super. 
So again, thanks, Sarah. And uh, we will talk to all of our listeners in the very near future. Shut up and sit down.